what a week it's been. And I just want to thank each and every one of you for all the ways in which you have served Jesus this week by serving this community. And um, Chris said it so well in, in the prayer. We don't need a, a once a year event like this to love and serve our community. Um, we've been sent to this community. And so we're to, all throughout the year, look for ways to love and serve and meet the needs of the people that God has placed us around. And their greatest need is for the gospel. Uh, the singular message of Serve Decula really is this, that we are a people who have been absolutely transformed by the gospel. It has changed our life. It has changed our eternal destiny. It is our singular source of hope and peace and real and lasting joy. And we want to share that gospel, that good news, with the people that God has placed around us so that God would be glorified through them. And so that is what we want to talk about this morning. So if you've got your Bibles and I hope that you do. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to take a bit of a break this morning from our study in Romans. We'll get back to it next week. But uh, this morning we want to focus just, what a great thing to be able to spend this Sunday just focusing on the gospel and its implications for our lives today. So I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at the first eight verses of this chapter. So just follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read. Church, this is the word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, untimely born he appeared also to me. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the message of this word. We thank you so much for the news that this represents. What it represents for us, what it represents for our neighbors, what it represents for our community and world, and what it represents for you as you redeem lost sinners, rebels, back to you. Pray, Father, that you would speak to us this morning, no matter where we are, no matter if this is the first time we've ever heard this news or whether we've heard it a million times. Lord, would you make it fresh and real and applicable to our lives? May the importance of this and the reality of this become very, very apparent to us. And Father, may you change us through this message, through your good news to make us more like Jesus. We pray this in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. 
So Paul here is talking about the gospel. So what is the gospel? The gospel's more than just a genre of music. We've heard about gospel music, gospel recording artists. There's southern gospel, urban gospel, country gospel music, but that's not what Paul is talking about. The word gospel literally means good news. It means the, the good message. In Greek, it's the, the euangelion, the evangel. Literally, the, the good message is what the word means. And Paul lays out this good news for us in these first eight chapters of 1 Corinthians 15. In the first two chapters, he tells us what we are to do with the gospel. And then in verses 3 through 8, through eight he tells us what the gospel is. And so I want to cover that first. I want us to unpack what the gospel is and then go back to the first two verses and understand what we are to do with it. So what is the gospel? Paul starts out in verse 3 by saying, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So, so this is something, first of all, that, that Paul himself received. It, it didn't start with him. This isn't a message that originated with him. He, he didn't come up with the gospel. It was something that was delivered to him, and he received it. Now, now he is simply passing it on. It's not something that originated with him. He, came, it, it didn't, he didn't come up with it. It's not his good news. It's, it's not his message. It was given to him. And, and the story of how it was given to him, the story of how it was delivered to him is a miraculous story. It is recorded in the book of Acts in the ninth chapter. Several other places in the New Testament and in Paul's letters, he writes about what happened to him. But, but Dr. Luke in the ninth chapter tells us as it's actually happening, he tells us what happened to Paul. At that point in his life, his name was Saul. It's before God changed his name to Paul. His, his name was Saul. He was a Jewish leader. He was a, he was a Pharisee. And his job was to go from town to town, from house to house, and pull out followers of Jesus and put them in chains and bring them, drag them back to Jerusalem so that they would be put on trial for apostasy, for believing in heresy. That, that was what he did. And he did it with passion. Well, one day he was on his way to a town called Damascus to do just that to drag Christians out and to take them back to Jerusalem and put them on trial for having the audacity to believe in Jesus and that Jesus rose from the dead and that he is the Jewish Messiah. So he's on the way to Damascus. And God interrupts his life, invades his life with this bright shining light that shone all around him. Paul, uh, Saul fell to the ground. He was blinded. And we've got this miraculous story of salvation, of, of Paul being radically changed and radically saved from, from being this persecutor of Christians to being this one who has given the gospel to take it to the Gentiles, one who is to proclaim this good news that he was so, working so hard to stop. Paul actually tells a part of his story in this very passage that we're looking at this morning. We read in the eighth verse of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then he says in the next verse, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy even to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
Before we even unpack what the gospel is, this should give us an indication of what kind of message this is. That the, that the gospel is a message that oftentimes will come to those who are least expecting it. Paul was trying to stop the gospel. He was not a seeker. He was not looking for the gospel. He was not looking for good news. He was trying to stop the gospel. He was trying to stop the spread of the message of Jesus. But God invaded his life with the gospel. Maybe there's someone here that's like that. Maybe there's someone in this room who's, who's like Saul. Maybe you're not actively trying to persecute the church. Maybe you're not actively trying to persecute Christians, but you're running from God. You're rejecting the gospel. You're not looking to be saved. You might even, not even know that you need to be saved. Listen, don't think for a moment that God is going to wait for you to get ready for that. And also, don't, don't think for a moment that you need to clean yourself up in order to make yourself acceptable to God so that the gospel can come to you. The Bible is very, very clear that we cannot clean ourselves up. This is why we need the gospel. So first, Paul says that he, he received it. He, it was de- just delivered to him. He didn't come up with this. And now he's passing it on. He's delivering it to the Corinthians. And he says, it is of first importance. To Paul, this message, this good news, the the gospel that we're going to see in just a moment was of first importance. It was primary. It, It was above and beyond all other messages, all other news. It was foundational to everything else that is said about God. In fact, it it is the overarching story of the entire Bible. Every page of Scripture points to the gospel, points to this news that Paul said is of first importance. So what is it? He gives it to us in a very succinct manner in the second half of verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. Five words, but they're packed with such incredible meaning. Christ died for our sins. First of all, Christ. This is Jesus. This is, this is the Messiah, the Son of God, the, the one and only Son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity, God in flesh, the one who was the fulfillment of the curse upon the serpent in the garden. After Adam and Eve sinned against God, God came and and pronounced a curse on Eve and a curse on Adam and a curse on the serpent. And he said to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, fancy word for I'll make you enemies. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the one who comes from her offspring, will bruise your head, serpent. And you, the one that comes from you, the, the, the offspring of you, will bruise his heel. Bible scholars call this the proto-evangelon. The, the, the good news before there was good news. The premise that there is good news coming. That there's going to be one that comes from the seed of Eve. 
who will crush the head of the serpent. It's a, it's a promise to us that the sin and death that comes into the world will one day be crushed and, and that the serpent will bruise his heel. Well, he will be crucified on the cross and he will suffer pain and he will, he will be put to death. But he will one day finally and ultimately defeat Satan and defeat sin and death for all time. Christ died. That's the second word in those five words. Christ died. He died on a Roman cross. He suffered the shame of Roman crucifixion. It was, it was execution. It was, it was like lethal injection a day or, or the, the electric chair. And Rome, the Romans were absolute experts at execution. Nobody ever survived crucifixion. They were very good at killing people. Jesus died, but he didn't just die. He died for others. He says Christ died for. So this was a substitutionary death. He didn't just die. He died for others. Who did he die for? He died for us. And more specifically, it says that Christ died for our sins. Now what? We've heard that before, that Christ died for our sins. But what does that actually mean? Christ died for for our sins. Well, this is where the good news is contrasted by the bad news. To say that Jesus died for our our sins is to say that our sins did something that was bad for us, that, that created some kind of bad news that the gospel then fixed, that the Jesus' death on the cross ratified or somehow fixed. Let's start by defining sin. Sin is anything that we say or do that disobeys or dishonors God. It could be our actions. It could be our words. It could be our thoughts. It could be when we do something that we shouldn't do or when we don't do something that we ought to do, that we should do. And God has given us his expectations for our actions, our words, and our thoughts in this book, in his word, the the Bible. In this, we find what he tells us is right or wrong. Literally, the word sin means to miss the mark, to, to not hit the target. Well, God defines for us what the target is. It is the commands and principles that we find in his word, scripture. And so the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong is God in his word, not us. We don't determine right and wrong. Not not popular opinion, not popular culture. And it only makes sense, right? Because if sin is against, is something that is against God, then only he has the right to determine what is right and what is wrong. And so he paints the target with Scripture. He gives us the mark that we are to hit with the Word of God. And, and, and the kicker here is that we all miss it. Not a one of us hits the mark. Paul says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. None of us has hit the target. And so we all need rescue. And the bad news is not only do we all miss the mark, but because we have missed the mark, because we have sinned and rebelled against God and disobeyed God and dishonored God in our actions, words, and thoughts, and we are hopelessly separated from our God, both in this life and in the life 
to come. See, sin started in the garden. God made everything, and he made everything good, including mankind, including man and woman. But mankind messed that up. Mankind disobeyed God. Mankind rebelled against God. And when mankind rebelled against God, it destroyed everything, including their perfect relationship with God. Before they had disobeyed God, they had perfect harmony with God. They were able to commune with God in perfect harmony. But after sin, the spirit inside of man, that that part of us that can commune with God, was put to death in each one of us. Now that spirit where we can communicate with God is no longer alive, and so we cannot have a relationship with God, any relationship with God, much less one in perfect harmony. And so we can't have a relationship with him in this life or in the next life. And because we can't be near God with our sin, we can't be with him in eternity either. And we can't be with him in heaven. Instead, All those who die in that sin-stained condition go to a place of eternal misery that the Bible calls hell. Unending, a place of unending torment. Now, wait a second. I thought we were talking about good news this morning. What's all this talk about sin and judgment and punishment and hell? Well, that is the bad news that the good news addresses you see if there is bad news and there is the bible is very clear that there is bad news for every single one of us and if there is bad news and this good news doesn't somehow address that and fix that then it's not good news it's just news it's kind of like those companies you've probably seen the the credit reporting companies advertise that that uh, advertise that they they will fix your online identity if it gets stolen or messed up, or they'll fix your credit. And and, and the way their advertising strategy works is they 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 point out that those credit monitoring companies they only make you aware of the problems with your credit report, or they only make you aware that your identity has been stolen online. They say, what good is it if they only make you aware and they don't do anything to actually fix it and solve that problem? Well, the same is true with this very, very bad news, that because of our sin against God, because of our rebellion and our actions, words, and thoughts, That we are hopelessly separated from a holy God and deserving of eternal judgment. If all of this news that we're talking about this morning does is make us aware of that condition and it doesn't do anything to address that and solve that problem, then it's not good news. It's just news. But it is good news because it says here that Christ died for our sins. In other words, Jesus paid the price for our rebellion. He paid the sin debt that each of us owes because of our rebellion against God. He lived the perfect life that we never could. He's the only one who who hit the mark. He's the only one who hit the target in his life. He perfectly fulfilled the law, and he died in our place. He died the death that we deserve to die in our place. 
And Paul says that this was in accordance with the scriptures. This was a fulfillment of God's promises. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. It was a fulfillment of the curse that was pronounced on the serpent in the garden that we read about. And it was the fulfillment of so many other prophecies of the Messiah who's promised, who would come. The, the promises in the Old Testament that there is one, coming one who will, who will come from the lineage of King David and who will sit on the throne of King David forever. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross is, is literally God keeping his promises to us. It is a fulfillment of the scriptures. And after he died on the cross, we're told what happened in verse 4. It says that he was buried and that he was, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So not only, not only did he die in our place, but he He rose from the dead. He didn't stay dead. He proved that he was the son of God by coming back to life, by rising from the dead. On Friday night, he paid the price for our sins. And on Sunday morning, he proved that he was the son of God. And his coming back to life proved that God the Father had accepted his sacrificial death as payment in full for our sins against him. See, the cross is payment made, and the empty tomb is payment accepted. The empty tomb is our receipt. It it, it is proof that the check has been cleared and that God has accepted his son's sacrificial death on the cross as full and sufficient payment for all who would trust in him. And then he showed himself. It says that in this passage that he appeared to many to give evidence to his resurrection. Look at verses 5 and following. It says that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Why did Paul say that? He said that because as he's, he's making his argument to the Corinthians here, he's saying, listen, if any of you doubt this, there are lots of folks that saw it with their own eyes. They saw the risen Christ come back to life, and you can go talk to them. They're, they're here, they're around Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Church, this is the good news. This is the good message, the evangel, the gospel. Now, what do we do with it? What, what do we do with this good news? Paul tells us in verses 1 and 2, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now, there are lots of verbs here, but they all describe what we do with the gospel. Now, I want to cover them chronologically. So as we think about what Paul is saying here about the Corinthians' interactions with the gospel, what comes first? Well, what comes first is Paul preaching the gospel to them. So first, the gospel is preached. He says, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So first of all, the gospel is preached. It's preached by Paul to them before they receive it. And we shouldn't skip over this because the gospel will not change a single life unless it is proclaimed. It is a message that must be 
proclaimed and, and preached and told. And by the, word, by the way, the word preach here in verse 1, it's not the normal word that we see for the word preach in the New Testament. The norm, normal word is caruso, but that's not the word that we find here in verse 1. In fact, the, the, the word that we find in verse 1 for the verb to preach is actually just the word gospel, but in a verb form. It's the verb form of the noun gospel. So literally, we could read verse 1 as saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel with which I gospeled you. It's the verb form of the word gospel. So it's, it's just a telling of this message. It's a, it's a declaring of the good news. It's gospeling. And so we don't need to read this as the only way for the gospel to be proclaimed is through the act of preaching as we know it, as one person standing up in front of the church and proclaiming the gospel. What Paul is saying here is something that each of us can, should, and ought to do as followers of Jesus Christ, to share and declare and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. But after Paul preached it to them, then what came next is that the gospel was received by the Corinthians. It says that they received. This is a message that they received. Now, what does it mean to receive the gospel? The Greek word here literally means to take to oneself. And so the idea is to take the gospel, this good message, to yourself. That it's not just good news, that it's good news for you. It's good news for me, that it, that it is, that's my good news. It's good news for you and I personally. Now, in part, this means to believe it, to believe the gospel. Um, the apostle John said in John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, then he defines that, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To all who received him, what does that mean? To believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So to receive something or someone, to receive news, a message, is to believe in it. But we need to be very careful here because the, the biblical understanding of believing is very different from our Western understanding of believing. To us, Believing something is almost purely, almost exclusively an intellectual exercise. But the biblical understanding of believing is an exercise of faith. In fact, the word believe itself in John chapter 1 verse 12 there, and pretty much everywhere else that we see the word believe in the New Testament, is simply the verb form of the word faith. Faith is the noun Believe is the verb. And so it, to, to believe is, is, to, is to faith, if that were a verb. It's, it's faithing. And so if receiving the gospel means believing the gospel, and, and if, if biblical believing is an exercise of faith, then to receive the gospel, as Paul says here that the Corinthians did, to receive the gospel is to put our faith in the gospel. In other words, not just believing intellectually that this stuff is true, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Not, not just believing intellectually, yes, yes, I believe that that is true. But because I believe that is true, 
I place my faith in Jesus Christ, in him crucified and risen three days later as my only and sufficient hope to be rescued from the punishment, the the penalty of my sins that I and each of us deserve. That's what faith is. That's putting our faith in Christ. So to receive the gospel is to put one's faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, which means rescuer, reconciler back to God, redeemer back to God, and Lord, God, the one who is ruling now, the one that we are following for the rest of our days. It means to put our faith in Christ alone. Let me give you an illustration of of what it means um, to put our faith in Christ alone. Last night at the community fun night, one of the things that uh, some of the guys did is they put up a banner. If you were here, you saw that, a big banner, and they, they tied it up between the posts. And so when we were wrapping up, we were cleaning up, Jason Reichert and I uh, went out and grabbed a, uh, an extension ladder, and we brought the extension ladder up, and um, I handed that to Jason. I'm not a big fan of ladders. I'm not a big fan of heights. Jesus said, "Lo, I am with you always. And so naturally, I said, Jason, you may ascend the ladder. So um, now Jason could have, at that point, he could have stood on the ground, and he, ha- he could have proclaimed, I, I believe that that ladder is going to hold me up. I believe that it's sturdy enough. I have intellectual agreement and affirmation that that's a strong ladder and it will hold me up. And he could have done that all night and that never would have gotten the banner down, right? It would still be sitting up there today. But no, he had to put his weight on that ladder and begin to take step after step after step. And when he was standing at the top of that ladder with all of his weight on it, leaning over, untying that banner, then we could say he had faith in that ladder. Some of you believe in Jesus. Some of you believe in the gospel, but you've never placed your faith in Christ alone. You've never never placed your faith in Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins in the place of you, that he lived the perfect life and achieved righteousness and, and hit that mark and you didn't, and so you're placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your only hope to be rescued from what you and I both deserve. You might believe that the gospel is true, but if you've never placed your faith in Christ alone, then according to Paul, you have not received the gospel. You've not responded to the gospel in faith. Now, you can, you can intellectually agree that the gospel is true all day long. But if you're trusting in your own ability to make yourself acceptable to God by what you do, by coming to church, if you're trusting in anything other than the very simple news that Jesus died for sinners like us in our place and rose again, If you're trusting in anything other than that, then your belief is not saving faith. 
The writer of Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is is having such an assurance in that truth, in that fact, such a conviction of that. Even though I don't see it, I have such a conviction of it that I'm going to put my weight on that ladder and I'm going to start climbing up it. I'm going to put all my hope in Christ alone. I'm going to put all my faith in Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus told us explicitly what a saving response to the gospel is. In verses 14 and 15 of Mark 1, it says, Now after John, this is John the Baptist, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, this is the words of Jesus, okay? If you got a red letter Bible, these are red letters. Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the only saving response to the gospel. And it's not two responses, it's one. Repent and believe. Repentance and faith. Believing, again, is the, is the verb form of faith. So it's, it's faithing in the gospel. Faithing in this message about what Jesus did for sinners. To repent means to turn, to turn from sin, to turn from self-rule, to turn from self-salvation, trying to earn God's favor by doing good works. That's not two responses of the gospel. That's one response, repentance and faith. It's two sides of the same coin. Um, if, if I were to give you a quarter, I've got a quarter in my pocket. Actually, i got two quarters. Um, I'll use this one. This is a, one of the American Eagle quarters. On one side, it's got the profile of George Washington. That's what we call the heads side. On the other side, it's got the eagle, or if you have a state coin, it has some kind of state thing on the other side. We call that the tail side. Uh, so if, if I were to give my son, Jonathan, uh, this coin, and, but, but I want to give Bodie the tail side. I'm going to give Jonathan the head side. I can't do that, can I? I can't give Jonathan the head side without also giving him the tail side. They, they, they both go together. The same is true in our response to the gospel. It's two sides of the same coin. I can't express saving faith in Jesus without also turning from trusting in my own works turning from sin and self-rule to turn to Christ and his rule over me. In the same way, I cannot turn from sin and self-rule without also turning to Christ in saving faith. It is two sides of the same coin. I can't do one without doing the other. Repent and believe, repentance and faith. So some of you may have never done that. You've never responded to the gospel in genuine repentance and faith. Maybe you marked a card, maybe you raised a hand, maybe you prayed a a prayer and followed along with somebody, but but you've never genuinely turned from your sin and self-rule and trying to save yourself by doing right and trying not to do wrong and thinking that that will make yourself acceptable to God and turn to faith in Christ alone. And if that's true of you this morning, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel this morning. But before we do that, we we need to see what else Paul says we must do with the gospel in verses 1 and 2. So he says first that the gospel is proclaimed. It must be preached, declared. Secondly, it is received by repentance and faith. 
And then thirdly, the gospel is good news. It is the good news in which we stand. What does it mean to stand in the gospel? Well, while receiving the gospel is that one-time response of repentance and faith. Standing in the gospel is that ongoing sense of continuing to trust in Christ and place our faith in Christ and continuing to turn from sin and self-rule. It's something that we continue to do each and every day. What does this mean for us? Church, this means that we never graduate from the gospel. We never get our gospel diploma and then move on to bigger and better things because there is nothing bigger and there is nothing better than the gospel. It is, as Paul said, of first importance. It is of primary importance. We continue to stand in the gospel each and every day. And the reason for this is because, fourthly, the gospel is the good news by which we are being saved. Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. That is a present tense verb. It's not something that once happened. It's something that is happening and is continuing to happen. He's talking about an ongoing action. We are being saved. Now, why does Paul talk about it this way? After all, when we respond in genuine repentance and faith, aren't we saved, past tense? Well, yes, in a sense, we are. But our salvation is so much grander than that. We are saved, past tense, from sin's penalty. There is no more provision that needs to be made for our sin. That's why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. There's nothing else that needs to be done for us to be saved from what we deserve. And so we are saved, past tense, from sin's penalty. But we are also, as Paul says here, being saved, present tense, from sin's power. But there's also a, a future tense of our salvation in that one day we will be saved finally from sin's very presence. But what Paul is referring to here at the beginning of verse 2 is that as we continue to stand in the gospel, as we continue to turn from sin and self-rule and turn to Christ in faith each and every day, he is changing us. He is transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. As we stand in the gospel and continue to trust in Christ, he is changing us from the inside out. We are being saved. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, therefore, my beloved, so he's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to followers of Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, as you have also always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul, Paul said this to, to believers who are already saved. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, you, you need to be being saved. But then he tells, us, he tells them the good news in verse 13. It's not all up to you. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. 
So if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our, as our only hope to be rescued from the judgment that we deserve because we're rebels, we're sinners, we're, we're those who have disobeyed God. If we've placed our faith in Christ alone, we've turned from sin and self-rule and turned to, turned to Christ as the ruler of our life, as the Lord of our life, then we are saved from sin's penalty. But we also need to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling each and every day as we continue to stand in Christ, stand in the gospel, and trust in Christ each and every day to change us, to look more like him. So the gospel is good news that we never graduate from. It's, it's not just for those who are lost and need to be saved. It is for the saved who are being saved. It's something that we continue to stand in. And this is why Paul says at the very beginning of verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Because the gospel is the good news in which we stand and by which we are being saved, then it is also, fifthly, the good news of which we need to be reminded. Again, Paul is talking here to believers. He's not talking to the lost. He's talking to followers of Jesus who are in the church in Corinth. They've already come to faith in Jesus. They are saved, past tense. And what does Paul tell them in the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 15? He reminds them of the gospel. Why do we need to be reminded of the gospel? Well, to put it very bluntly, we need to be reminded of the gospel because we tend to forget it. We are forgetful people. We tend to forget the gospel. We get caught up in the cares of the world And we forget the gospel. We forget our daily need for faith. We forget our daily need for standing in the gospel, in the hope of the gospel to to change us, to transform us, to give us hope, to remind us that there is a home. Our citizenship is somewhere else. This this isn't our home. And he's going to give us everything that we need. That's displayed to us in the gospel. We need the gospel each and every day. We need to be reminded of it because we tend to forget. We also need to be reminded of the gospel because we have a tendency to take it for granted. We have a tendency to assume the gospel. Church, when we assume the gospel, then we begin to lose clarity on what the gospel is. And when we begin to lose clarity on the gospel, then we run the risk of losing the gospel for the next generation. The generation that assumes the gospel loses clarity on the gospel and is on the cusp of losing the gospel itself for future generations. And so, church, let us not assume the gospel. Let us not take the gospel for granted. Let us not, church, settle for just implying the gospel. But instead, let us be explicit about the gospel and let us proclaim it and declare it to one another and to the world with crystal clear clarity so that it is preserved for us and future generations for the glory of God. And then Paul adds this final word of caution at the end of verse 2. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. To hold fast to the gospel is the same idea as standing in the gospel. It is to have a firm grip on the gospel. 
that your grip on the gospel remains firm over time, and if anything, it strengthens over time, that you have this firm grip on it. Now, Paul is not saying here that that if you genuinely place your faith in Christ and you genuinely turn from sin and self-rule and turn to Christ and his rule over your life, well, then you better also hold fast to the gospel because if you don't, then you might lose your grip on it and you might lose your salvation. This is not a warning about losing your salvation. Instead, it is a warning to ensure that your response to the gospel is genuine and real and true. Because if it wasn't genuine, if it was just a prayer you prayed because, you know, that's what everybody was doing or that's what your parents expected you to do, if it was just kind of going through the motions of religion and, you know, I'm going to walk the aisle and I'm going to join that church or I'm going to get baptized, if it wasn't genuine, then it was as if you had believed in vain. So church, what do we do with the gospel? What do you do with the gospel this morning? Paul only leaves three options available to us. Number one, to receive it. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you've, you've never genuinely placed your faith in Christ alone as your only hope to be rescued from what you now realize you and all of humanity deserves apart from Christ. If that describes you, I want to implore you to receive the gospel in genuine repentance and faith in Christ. So that's one option. The other option is to reject the gospel. You can reject the gospel. You, you, you can say, you know what, I, I, I don't believe this. I'm going I'm to walk away from this. But please, if that's, if, if that's what you're doing this morning, understand what you are doing. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. This is the only way, and you are rejecting that way. Please understand what it is that you're doing if you reject the gospel this morning. But if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ and you know him as your Savior and your Lord, then the exhortation from the Apostle Paul this morning is to stand in it. Keep standing in it. Keep holding fast to it. This isn't your home. This is what we talked about during Serve Decula. We've been sent here to serve, to take this gospel to the lost around us, but this isn't our home. That's why it doesn't feel like home. That's why we suffer. That's why there's hard times. There's coming a day when all that will go away, and he's going to bring us home, and we're going to enter into his presence. And, and, and as, he, as he tells us, our faith that, that, that now is, is as if we look in a mirror dimly. Our faith will be made sight. The writer of Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. One day, our faith will be sight, and we will see it clearly, and all the sufferings of this world will be gone. But for now, for now, he's maturing you. He's growing you. He's growing your faith in him. And he wants to use you. And so keep standing in the gospel. Keep holding fast to the gospel until he brings you home and, or until he comes to collect you. Let's pray. 
If you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Christ, then I just want to implore you. I'm, I'm not going to ask you to walk an aisle. I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand. I'm, I'm not going to ask you to, to, to pray a, a, a certain prayer. It's not about the words that come out of our mouth. But if you've never placed your faith in Christ alone, then I would implore you this morning to repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone to save you. Simply cry out in faith, in the quietness of your heart, Lord Jesus, I recognize my sin against you has separated me, hopelessly separated me from you. I cannot earn your acceptance. All I can do is confirm my judgment, and I'm sorry. I confess this to you, Lord. And I turn from that in faith, and I turn to you and your son, Jesus Christ. I, I put all my faith, all my hope, all my trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross as my only and sufficient hope for rescue from what I deserve. Would you give me the faith to trust in you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength to make you, Lord, the delight of my eyes? Walk me across the line of faith. Deliver me from death to life. And give me this gospel. Give me this good news that I may share it with others. Make me a Saul that turns to Paul. Make me an enemy that turns to a child. Save me by faith in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would save people this morning. We pray, Father, that you would save people in our homes, in our workplaces, as we take this gospel to the world around us. But Lord, help us to stand in it, because it's hard. Now, we, we know people in our church who are suffering deeply, even this morning. God, would you give us the strength to continue to stand in the hope of the gospel that you will give us everything that we need to live faithfully for you that you are continuing to grow us and mature us and draw our affections to you and that one day this world will end and our faith will become sight and we will be in your presence help us lord to stand faithfully in the gospel by the grace of god for the glory of god this is the gospel, and we thank you for it, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.